Curiosity rolls on across Mars, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Mars Science Laboratory project scientist Ashwin Vasavada is back to tell us what that 10-year-old rover has been up to. Discoveries, beautiful images, and enormous amounts of data from its 10 instruments. Curiosity has also lately been paving the way for the humans that will someday walk on the red planet. Later we'll check in with the Society's chief scientist. Bruce Betts has lots to tell us about, including a Venus transit that you did not, repeat, did not miss. There's still time for you to help us make Planetary Radio better. You'll find our easy, quick questionnaire at planetary.org survey. I'm very grateful to all of you who've already completed it and to those who are about to. We'll be shutting it down in a few days, so we hope to hear from you very soon. There haven't been a lot of spectacular full-frame images of the International Space Station since space shuttles stopped visiting. This makes the lovely photo taken recently from a Crew Dragon spacecraft even more special. You'll find it at the top of the January 14 edition of the Downlink, where there's coverage of the trouble Perseverance has had with one of the samples it has attempted to collect. Some pebbles got in the way of the mechanism. We just learned that the rover is simply going to dump them and take another sample from the same rock, so no big deal? NASA has a new chief scientist, and it may signal a re-energized focus on Earth science and especially climate change. Catherine Calvin is an accomplished climate scientist. I hope we'll get to talk with her on Planetary Radio before long, and I also hope to bring back her predecessor, longtime friend of the show, Jim Green. As always, you'll find much more at planetary.org slash downlink. The Jet Propulsion Lab's Ashwin Vasavada served for many years as Deputy Project Scientist for the Mars Science Laboratory. He stepped up to Project Scientist when John Grotzinger returned to teaching and research at Caltech. That was in 2015. As you'll hear, Curiosity is still going strong. On January 18th, too late to include the news in my conversation with Ashwin, we learned about the rover's detection of a carbon isotope that is consistent with life. There are possible non-biological explanations, but this is one more step toward that ultimate goal. By the way, we've got a link to this story and many other great resources on this week's episode page at planetary.org slash radio. Ashwin, welcome back to Planetary Radio for this uh, check-in on the Curiosity mission, the Mars Science Laboratory mission. In your honor and the mission's honor, I'm wearing my Planet Fest Curiosity t-shirt, the one that says, Curiosity Knows No Bounds. It's a nine and a half year old t-shirt because, well, we just passed the 10th anniversary of Curiosity's launch last November, and it will have been exploring Mars for 10 years this coming August. Absolutely amazing. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. It's, it's wonderful to be here. And yeah, I still can't get over it myself that we're doing so well, you know, almost 10 years into the surface mission. It's wonderful. And I bet you're thankful for that uh, RTG on the rear end of uh, the rover, right? You don't have to worry about dust. and At least that's one thing you don't have to worry about as much. Yeah, it's true. And fortunately, 
it's always been this case where you don't have to worry about dust killing you immediately, but you know you have this gradual slow death over the long term. Right, right. And, uh, we thought actually that would catch up with us by now, but fortunately we found ways to be very efficient with the energy we use and we've maximized what we can do and extended the life of the mission, even with the declining RTG. I am not surprised that uh, that team has found ways to stretch the energy budget. And you're in the same boat as, you know, you're in good company. you got Voyager out there uh, still struggling along uh, past the uh, the uh, outer planets. What is the status of the rover uh, overall, its cameras, its instruments? Doing quite well. One thing I always like to make sure our bosses at headquarters, you know, NASA headquarters understand is that we have 10 <laughs> very highly functioning instruments to this day, which again, I'm just very grateful for and and never would have expected to be in such a good shape 10 years later. All of our instruments are functioning very well. A few minor capabilities have been lost. You know, one thing that is probably most apparent is we've lost our ability to measure winds, Uh, but Mm. we have a meteorology suite that does a lot of things besides just winds. So we're continuing to measure the weather in other ways. And from the rover perspective, I think the best way to describe it is that we've overcome a lot of different challenges. And fortunately, there hasn't been anything that's been so severe that it's really decreased our capability. We lost the ability to drill for over a year. But as you know, man, what a great feat by the engineering team here to find a new way to drill to overcome the loss of that motor. So that's been the story. There's been little well, sometimes more than little <laughs> problems with things <laughs> like a motor or with the wheels or the with wheels. every card, you know, chips on the rover, that sort of thing. But it, in every case, it hasn't been like a fatal error, obviously. And we've been able to find ways to work around them. So the rover and instruments are doing great. I love to start with um, that intersection of art and science. And we got a good example of that not too long ago. There was this uh, panoramic view of a, of a Martian landscape that in one image captured both morning and evening on the red planet. And we'll put it up on this week's episode page, planetary.org slash radio. Did you find that as, as stunning as uh, so many of the rest of us did? Yeah. And it's just jaw dropping. And it was so unexpected for us to um, have that reaction, I think, and for that to have worked so well, not only with our team, but With the entire world, we got so much great feedback on that. You know, the story behind that is we were climbing up, we've been climbing up this very tall mountain and we kind of crested a little part, a little local hill and looked back and saw we had this great view of the crater floor and it's a very clear time of year. So I asked one of our um, engineering camera leads, his name is Doug Ellison, you can probably know him, right? I do know Doug, yeah. yes. <laughs> no, he's, Very he's, happy member of the team. Exactly, yeah. So I asked Doug, I said, can you can you take uh, you take navigation pictures all the time, but let's take a nice panorama looking backwards that is at the highest quality that the engineering cameras can, can do. Because those are spectacular cameras, but they never get to show off. Our navigation wow. images are compressed like crazy for efficiency reasons. And so he said, sure, I'll take some pictures. And by the way, I want to take two, one in the morning, one in the evening. I said, okay, whatever. I don't care. Do it. And but he didn't tell me why. And he had already formulated this idea of how that might look. Uh, and so, you know, Doug gets the credit and really made a wonderful visualization. Yeah. Move over Jim Bell, you know, who I call the uh, <laughs> the Ansel Adams of Mars. This is really that kind of a that kind of a shot. It's also amazing to look at the the two 
original shots where, you know, the lighting has changed because the sun has moved to the other side of the sky. It, that and that wonderful colorization, there there really are, as you said, uh, jaw-dropping. So where are you now? Obviously still climbing Mount Sharp, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, and we'll continue to climb till we can climb no more. Uh, Gale Crater and Mount Sharp have been such a wonderful place for us to explore. We felt when the site was selected that the advantage of going to a place like Mount Sharp is that you climb a large mountain with layers that change in their appearance and their composition and therefore record a, a varying geologic history and that it would be a gift that would keep on giving. And that's certainly been the case. Every year we climb to a new level on Mount Sharp, we're in a different part of Mars ancient history and exploring a different environment. And the place we're at now is a very important point in the mission. We're at a transition between layers that have a lot of clay minerals and layers that have sulfate minerals. And we can get into the importance of that later, but that's kind of where we're at. And it also corresponds to a change from relatively flat topography to a topography that's characterized by a lot of buttes and mesas and hills. So the surroundings have just gotten very spectacular too, as we've gotten into this local area. So this area that you've just left behind, the the so-called Murray Formation, has special meaning for a lot of us at the Planetary Society, and I'm sure for a lot of you at JPL as well, because named after our co-founder, the the former JPL director, Bruce Murray. What did that formation tell us about Mars, this this so-called clay unit? Sure. Uh, These names really are kind of hallowed ones in planetary science. Mount Sharp is named after uh, Robert Sharp, who worked alongside Bruce Murray at, at Caltech in the early days of, you know, when planetary science didn't really have a name. It, it was just, <laughs> yeah. uh, right, people people coming from different fields and applying, you know, physics and geology and, uh, you know, terrestrial fields, building cameras to, to strap onto these JPL spacecraft. Anyway, I could go on about that. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but yes, we named the package of geologic layers at the base of Mount Sharp, uh, we call that the Murray Formation. We've been exploring that now for probably about seven of the nine years that we've been on on site there at Gale Crater. Uh, and so far, there hasn't been a reason to uh, for the geologists to say that we've left that Murray Formation. It's all been very mm. similar and all been dominantly uh, layers laid down in ancient lakes, which has been wonderful for our goal of trying to understand whether Mars ever was habitable. The fact that we have Hundreds of meters of lake bed sediments all stacked up, you know, in this mountain means that Mars was habitable for a long time. But lately, we found that things have been changing in a fairly significant way. Uh, The lake bed sediments are disappearing and being replaced now by sediments that were laid down in more dynamic environments, maybe at the shores of lakes or within rivers. It's been so persistent now that looking back over the last year or so, uh, the geologists on our team who take care of this kind of uh, mapping and classification have decided that uh, the Murray Formation uh, ended, and now we're in what we're calling the Carolyn Shoemaker Formation. Oh, and I'm sure she would have been quite honored. Carolyn Shoemaker, of course, great explorer and scientist in her own right, and the uh, the widow uh, of Eugene Shoemaker, who uh, was was quite a pioneer. So, with the the Murray Formation formation, the clay unit left behind. And you're now in this transitional area, and you're seeing a lot of these sulfates, right? Which uh, 
have become, you know, one of the one of the features of the Martian surface that um, that weren't expected not that many years ago, right? I, I mean, Viking wasn't expecting them, uh, and yet it um, got in the way of some of those old Viking experiments. But they tell us a lot, don't they? We think they do. You know, having the benefit of these orbiter missions behind us. Uh, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and uh, the Mars Express a European mission, they mapped the planet and discovered this rich mineralogy over the surface. And as you said, uh, one thing that they've seen are, are lots of sulfates, and they tend to uh, overlie the clay uh, mineral deposits in many areas. This has caused people to wonder whether there was a planet-wide transition from an environment that formed clay minerals to one that formed sulfates which probably would correspond to a wet environment going into a dry environment. We're the first mission that can really explore that transition up close and personal on the surface and figure out if it really does correspond to a climate change within Gale and extrapolating that uh, to the rest of Mars. Maybe uh, this is evidence for that big transition that we all think happened early on in Mars history when it went from this wet planet, maybe warm planet, to the dry planet it is today. Isn't that one of these big questions that you're hoping to answer? I mean, not just how wet was Mars, but when did that transition take place in its long history? Yeah, uh, when did it take place? And and then, you know, the benefit of what we can do at the surface is really see the detail of it. Was it a gradual transition that occurred over millions of years? Did it, uh, you know, by expectations kind of on when you look at a trust, the terrestrial record of climate changes, it probably wasn't just a, a black and white change. It probably came and went a few times, it wet, dry, wet, dry, and then finally dry, dry, dry. You know, we'll be able to look at that level of detail about how, how did, you know, what's the nature of that climate uh, change on Mars? When did it occur and how did it occur? So this region that you are headed toward, I know it's been given a name that means a lot to you uh, and the team. Could you say something about Rafael Navarro? Sure. Yeah, Rafael Navarro was a member of our SAM team, which is uh, an instrument that is the one that does uh, the processing analysis of the samples that we take from uh, from our drill. He, he came from a, a university in Mexico and just a, a wonderful, generous scientist who worked with the team the entire time Curiosity was on Mars and made a number of interesting discoveries um, you know, using that SAM data. Uh, and he passed, you know, a, a year ago or so, and we saw a really wonderful mountain that was kind of the gateway to the upper regions on Mount Sharp. We had to cross in front of this mountain and go around it to get where we are now uh, at the base of the sulfate unit. And so we thought it was just very fitting uh, to call that mountain the gateway to the rest of our exploration on Curiosity, the Rafael Navarro Mountain. Another terrific tribute. Mm. Using the spectroscopy that was done by the orbiters previously, we can map out on Mount Shop where the clay minerals are and where the, where the sulfate minerals are. And we're in this region that's sort of no man's land in between the two, which means we're seeing lots of changes, as you might expect. We saw this change from the Murray Formation to the Carolyn Shoemaker Formation. So in other words, a change from lakes to these more dynamic environments. And then now we're seeing the clay minerals disappear. We've drilled a series of holes and we saw less clay each time. And so the obvious question then is, are the sulfates appearing? And so far, we haven't found nearly as much as we thought we might. Hmm. So we've seen the clays disappear, but we're still waiting for the sulfates to appear. 
And that's been an interesting mystery too. Uh, we found little hints of sulfates in some of the diagenetic features, these features that have formed later after the original deposition, little nodules, concretions, fractures filled with minerals. Those seem to contain the sulfates, but we still expect that we're going to find a lot more uh, higher up uh, because the orbital data tells us that there should be hundreds of meters of thick of rocks enriched in sulfates. So safe to say more surprises ahead. I think so. Uh, more surprises ahead. We also are going to be looking not only at the sulfate unit, but even the layer that formed after the sulfate unit, uh, which is this sandstone layer that you and I were discussing earlier, and also debris that has come down maybe in, in, in rivers and streams from higher on Mount Sharp. There's a channel we're going to explore that's filled with boulders and other debris, which might give us a chance to uh, see what the rocks are like from much higher up on the mountain that we may never get to. And, that, and not only that, but to actually explore what might have been once a very fast flowing river or debris avalanche from, the, from higher up on the mountain. So lots of exciting stuff ahead. So a lot left to learn, a lot left to explore. As you know, the, uh, the goal, we've all been told, is uh, we keep focused on getting humans up there. Uh, and all of us at the Planetary Society, I think it's safe to say, look forward to humans walking on the red planet. Those humans are going to have to be protected from radiation, among other things. Is curiosity helping us to prepare for, for that challenge? I read a little bit about this. Yes, it certainly is. And we've had some exciting new results lately that are directly relevant to keeping humans safe on Mars one day. We have uh, 10 instruments on the rover, and one of them was supported initially by the human exploration part of NASA. 10 years ago, they asked us to fly a radiation sensor so we can study the uh, amount of high energy radiation, the kind of radiation that, uh, for example, could cause cancer if you're not sufficiently shielded from it. So it's very important for us to measure that at the surface because we've measured it in space before, but Mars uh, not only, you know, in the good sense, shields a lot of that radiation just because now you have the planet below you and you're only exposed to sort of half the radiation you get from space when it's coming at you from all directions. But also uh, the opposite, the negative side is that that radiation can interact with the atmosphere of Mars or the rocks on Mars and cause what's called secondary particles that could be more harmful than the initial particles uh, mm. because they might be bigger or slower than those initial particles and more likely to, to cause changes in your, in your body. Uh, we've been measuring that now for nine and a half years. One neat experiment we did recently was got up close to a cliff to figure out if we hunkered next to a cliff like an astronaut might do someday, how much would that cliff shield us? And importantly, would it shield us or would those secondary particles increase instead and it would be more dangerous to hang out below that cliff? <laughs> and we figured out um, that the, the size of this cliff and the thickness of it was sufficient to actually shield the rover from that radiation. Uh, and so that's an important data point to think about in the future when we're designing habitats for astronauts. I'm also thinking about those little bits of material that could be used to make uh, spacesuits for humans to wear on Mars that are that are on perseverance. So, uh, you know, that arrow taking us toward that time when uh, we see boots on Mars seems to be uh, getting a little bit closer. I'm looking forward to the day when, oh, human tourists <laughs> or others, explorers, 
maybe go and visit Curiosity and uh, put a little sign up next to it and salute it for uh, what it did to teach us about this planet and also help prepare the way for for them. Uh, and uh, Ashwin, it, it's great to talk to you about that work that is underway. Thank you to you and the entire team. Uh, it is a great pleasure, and uh, we'll continue to follow the mission. Appreciate it very much. It's really exciting, and we're, we're just so glad to keep going. That's Mars Science Laboratory Project Scientist Ashwin Vasavada. He and I talked about much more, including a deeper dive into the rover's fascinating science results. You can hear it all at planetary.org slash radio. Planetary Radio will be right back with What's Up. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Hi again, it's Casey Dreyer, Chief Advocate here at the Planetary Society. Our 2022 Day of Action is March 8th. This is your chance to advocate directly on behalf of space exploration. You can learn more about this year's virtual event at planetary.org slash dayofaction. We provide expert training, talking points, and we'll even book your congressional meetings for you. If you live outside the U.S., we have opportunities for you, too. It all starts at planetary.org slash dayofaction. Thanks. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. We are joined again by the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. He's Bruce Betts, and uh, I wish you could see him. He's doing the most interesting things with his beard. What's left of it, anyway? <laughs> Welcome. They're mostly to amuse you, Matt, since... <laughs> not not many people see me but, and and my and my kids so I wish I could share this picture and I bet your kids are quite entertained <laughs> <laughs> it's gradually going away hey bruce what's not going away well it's complicated but planets in general not going away but they are going in and out and around the sky you know what that devious venus did what it crossed between us and the sun very quickly. Oh, and uh -huh. so it went from being in the evening sky a couple weeks ago. Now it's it's pretty much firmly placed in the morning sky in the pre-dawn east, super bright Venus. Still very low, but pops up within the next week or two. You should be able to see it quite easily. So if it went between us and the sun, but there wasn't a transit, no transit of Venus across the surface? Uh, there probably was, and probably no one predicted it. No, there wasn't a. <laughs> there, there was not a transit. The two planets don't orbit in exactly the same plane, and it's so far away, and the sun's so far away, you really have to line it up pretty perfectly, which is why you only get a couple transits every, whatever it is, 100 years ish. It's like the moon. You don't get a total eclipse every time it passes between. So anyway, look in the pre-dawn east, and you got super bright Venus low on the horizon. Above it to its upper right is Mars. They'll get closer over the coming couple weeks. And above Mars, reddish Mars, is the reddish star Antares. The evening sky, Jupiter, still holding out over in the west, looking super bright. And Saturn, not as bright, low by the horizon. May see it, may not. By the way, I have determined through scientific observation, we are fully in Northern Hemisphere winter. So I'm assuming Southern Hemisphere summer. <laughs> 
This, of course, is marked by the easy viewing in the evening of the constellation Orion. And, Yay. Uh, so check out Orion. On to This Week in Space History, 1986, Voyager 2 flew past Uranus, our one and only view so far of the Uranian system. Wow, yeah. And I guess we should remind people that that's because the other Voyager spacecraft was diverted from Uranus to Neptune so that it could do that flyby. Wasn't it to get a good view of Saturn or the moons or something? It was to get a good view of Titan. And uh, Voyager 2 did that grand tour. I had that special alignment that allowed it to do four planets. Opportunity <laughs> landed, the rover landed in 2004 this week wow. and operated for like a gazillion years. <laughs> it sure did. We move on to random space fit. <laughs> <laughs> Parker Solar Probe. You may have heard of that recently on, I don't know, this show. <laughs> Not only has set records as the closest spacecraft to the sun, tied to that, is sets records every time it goes flying closer to the sun for the fastest spacecraft ever relative to the sun. In its fastest planned periaps in a few years, it'll be 192 kilometers per second or 119 miles per second. You're probably wondering, Matt, if it flew across the contiguous United States west to east from the Pacific to the Atlantic at that speed, how long would it take? Less than 24 seconds. Man, oh man, much faster than anything in uh, low Earth orbit. That's fascinating. Thank you. All right, we move on to the trivia contest, and we asked you about Fraunhofer, or at least that's where we got to the answer. I asked you, who are the main solar absorption lines at visible wavelengths named for? So you split the spectrum, the sun into a rainbow spectrum. You do it well enough, you see a bunch of black lines tied to absorption features in the sun's atmosphere of different elements. Who was that guy that we named it after that I also just told you, so it's not really a surprise? <laughs> Matt, how'd we do? Well, uh, Bo Garner and a whole bunch of other people did really well, but it was Bo who got the nod from random.org this week. I, I believe a first-time winner in Virginia. Full name? Well, actually not full name because he's got one of those German names that goes on and on and on. But Joseph von Fraunhofer, uh, it was good enough uh, for Bo to uh, win this time around. Congratulations, Bo. We're going to send you probably the last one going out, I think, another one of those 2022 International Space Station wall calendars that we have at the office. So uh, we'll uh, ask folks to put that in the mail to you very soon, Bo. Get this from Bo. He heard the show that I did. Uh, we reported on the uh, preparation for the recovery of the Artemis One Orion capsule. Loved hearing about the USS John P. Murtha's potential recovery for the Artemis capsules. He just joined the Navy not too long ago. He says, so now I know where I should try to get stationed in order to claim my connection <laughs> to our missions to the moon. Hey, we'll welcome you to San Diego, Bo. And uh, you know what I'm going to say, right? Thank you for your service. Yes, thank you for your service and congratulations. What planets in our solar system have higher quote, surface, unquote, gravity than Earth. What planets have higher surface gravity than Earth? For the giant planets, which have no surfaces, use the gravity at the one bar pressure level, which is about one atmosphere. And go to planetary.org slash radio contest to get us your entry. You've got until the 26th. That would be January 26th 
at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us this answer and possibly win yourself a Planetary Society kick asteroid rubber asteroid. We're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky and think about, think about, think, <laughs> think about, I, I, what should they think about, Matt? Uh, they should think about answering our survey while there's still time <laughs> at planetary.org slash survey. Tell us what you think of Planetary Radio and Bruce getting totally lost in his thinking. Thank you and good night. Von Betzenberg out. <laughs> That's uh, Von Betzenberg. He joins us every week here for What's Up. Sounded like we planned that survey mention, didn't it? Nope. But that's not the fault of associate producers Marco Verda and Jason Davis. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astral.